Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Every generation has a handful of thinkers and writers who profoundly shape the way we experience the world by tapping into the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. Today's guest, Michael Pollan, is one of those rare individuals. First, he did it for food, with a series of important and influential books and articles for The New Yorker and The New York Times that changed the way we thought about how our food was made and about what sorts of foods we should eat. In recent years, he's been doing it again, this time with psychedelics, with books like How to Change Your Mind, and most recently, This Is Your Mind on Plants. Throughout this body of work, Michael has focused on the intersecting point between nature and culture and he tries both to tell our stories and to guide us directionally in how we ought to experience the world. Michael therefore writes about power, one of our central themes here on Deep Background this season, but he is also someone who, in his own gentle way, deploys a substantial amount of power in our culture. He's here today to talk about his new book and the trajectory of his career and how it all fits together. Michael, thank you so much for being here. There are so many questions that I want to ask you, but let me start with one aspect of your fascinating new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. And this book is many different things, but one of them is a kind of philosophical meditation on the fates of different plant-based substances and how we end up regulating them. And I'm wondering how you came to that thematic arrangement for the book with your three substances and the different status that each has. 
So I looked at three plants and the chemicals they produce, the psychoactive chemicals they produce. And I wanted to make sure one of them was legal and completely acceptable in our society and virtually invisible for that reason. And that was caffeine. And I wanted to, to change the context of, of opium and, and mescaline too by, by putting the three together. Had the book been all illegal substances, it would have been a drug book. But it's I'm much more interested in looking past the categories, which are interesting and arbitrary in some ways, logical in others, to this basic human drive to change consciousness, which I think is such a curious thing that we were born with this, apparently, this desire, and it, it manifests itself even in children who love to spin and get dizzy, uh, to vary normal consciousness, to transcend the ego, or reinforce it in the case of some drugs. And we have these remarkable tools presented to us by plants. So I wanted to sort of change the context, because people go right to these categories, illicit drug acceptable drug, pharmaceutical drug. But if you go back in time, you know, they've been upside down. I mean, there was a time I described in the opium chapter where the farmer on the land where I now live in Connecticut, he was making alcohol from his apples, uh, making hard cider, which is a very common drink in rural America for a long time. That was a federal crime that could have put him in jail. At that very moment, the um, the women fighting for temperance were commonly enjoying their women's tonics, which were these preparations you could buy at drugstores that contained opium and cannabis, and that was perfectly legal. So, so I'm trying to kind of defamiliarize ourselves with these categories a little bit and, and get us to start rethinking them. It was really fascinating to me reading the book because, as you've just well, very well described, we haven't yet gotten to peyote, the third substance you talk about. You wanted three substances with different legal categorizations because you were trying to move us away from thinking about the legal categorizations and towards the plants and the human impulse to ingest the psychoactive. And yet, um, or maybe, and also, the book that emerged spends some time talking about the basic human urge, some time about the experiential relationship we have to these different plant-based substances. But a lot of the book ends up being devoted to telling the story. You're such a good storyteller, you couldn't help yourself but tell the story <laughs> of how each of these substances came to occupy the regulatory category, whether social or legal or both, that it did come to occupy. So in a way, a book that sets out to be a book about the power of plants is also a book about human power and the way humans categorize and engage with these same plants. Oh, without question. I mean, I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by history and how at different times in history, we see nature and culture in very different ways. And drugs are a great example since they're constantly evolving in our estimation of them. I mean, right now we're in the midst of a re- categorization of psychedelics. I mean, there's still a schedule one drug, you know, with no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse, neither of which is true. But nevertheless, that's the official category for psychedelics. But because of this renaissance of research into their value as therapeutic aids to help people deal with mental illness and dying, they're undergoing a shift. And I think if we did this interview in five or 10 years, they will no longer be on Schedule 1, and they will be part of the pharmacopoeia. And nobody would have guessed that back in the 
late 60s when they were first prohibited. So we're in the midst of a sea change right now, I think. And opiates are going the opposite direction, of course. But my message is too in the book is it's not all one or the other. We need to think about drugs with the kind of negative capability or suppleness that the Greeks did. They called all these drugs pharmacon, which can mean both poison or, or medicine. And also scapegoat, by the way, which is, I think, not an accident, because we tend to blame these drugs for all sorts of things. But it's, it's very hard for us to hold two contradictory ideas in our head. And around drugs, you really have to, because they can be very dangerous. They can get people into trouble. They can kill people. But they also can heal and give people insights into existence and shift their consciousness in ways that is very productive for them as individuals and for the species, I believe. Do you have any hope that we would ever reach a more rational set of structures for making sense of this and governing it? And if so, what would rational look like to you? I mean, one could say, well, here's the thing about coffee or caffeine. It doesn't leave you rampaging in the streets. Right. Um, Yet in your chapter on caffeine, you make the point that we can't just describe the effects of caffeine as minor or trivial. Um, the hope that we'll ever be rational about this, <laughs> the evidence of history is that we won't, and that there is a fundamentally irrational part of human life and of the human mind that drugs plays into. We're constantly, we're, you know, we're meaning-making creatures, and we will make meaning out of everything. And then if you take a particularly powerful substance that seems to have its own meanings, and perhaps does, will project all sorts of stuff on that. But again, the same drug at different times in history can be regarded as encouraging passivity or encouraging violence. I mean, it's, it's interesting how inconsistent we are even about the image of these drugs and what they do for us. I, I'm convinced that our interpretation of psychedelic experience owes maybe one part to the chemical and nine parts to culture and individual psyche. I mean, that we construct this experience. I've always wondered what would happen if psychedelics hadn't first been written about by Aldous Huxley, who, who puts a very Eastern spin on it. It's more like Eastern religion than Christian religion. And that orientalizing of psychedelics, I think, descends from him and gets picked up by Leary, who used the Tibetan Book of the Dead to interpret the experience. What if some Christian mystics had written the first modern accounts of a psychedelic trip? Would it have looked very different? I'm guessing it could have been. It could have been constructed differently. But you have to tease apart what's really inherent about the experience. But people you know, forget that everything you experience on a psychedelic is not in the molecule. The molecule doesn't have anything in it. It, it. it really is a catalyst for a process in your own mind that draws on everything in your memory from your own personal experiences to what you've learned about how the world works. And, and this is one of the reasons I'm so interested in drugs. They're one of those interesting rubs between nature and culture, between our biology and everything we are because of the culture we inhabit. But then you have this other tradition, though, right? The, the Native American tradition, ayahuasca and peyote and, and mushrooms. And I, I found that really fascinating, partly because I didn't know much about it and hadn't paid much attention to peyote or the Native American use of psychedelics before. 
but they have a different construction and it's 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 very religious it's very social which is interesting I and mean, the drug trip is not an individual matter it's it's a, it's it's something that happens at the level of the community so they put a different interpretation on it yeah i think that's really important and i agree that that's one of the really interesting things in your book and you also show at the same time the connection of the history of mescaline and other cactus derivatives in resistance to the process of domination and cultural and literal genocide perpetrated against Native American peoples, especially in North America, but also in, in South and Central America. And the way that peyote came to be part of the resistance to that story through the emergence of the Native American peyote church in the late 19th century, and then it's flourishing again in the 1970s and 80s. And that's a really rich and important part of your book. And I wondered if I could ask you about an aspect of that that has struck me when I hear contemporary non-Indigenous people talking about the use of peyote. And that is, where do you, th do you think that fits into our discourse around cultural ownership and cultural appropriation, especially cultural ownership by Indigenous peoples? I mean, on the one hand, they are, in some sense, part of the common legacy of all humans. And in another sense, they're very specifically connected to particular cultures, cultures that have suffered from destruction. So I wonder how you think about that. So I struggle with this because I was deciding whether I was going to use peyote, having learned about the sensitivities about it on the part of Native Americans. I had interviewed uh, many Native Americans who felt threatened by the white use or the non-native use of peyote. But there are two issues there. There's a cultural appropriation issue, and there's a material appropriation issue, in that there is a shortage of peyote, and that because of overuse, because of poaching, this cactus, this sacred plant, which has become so essential to Native American identity among many tribes, hundreds of tribes now, and has been such a powerful tool of healing the unique trauma of Native Americans, that I came to the conclusion that as a non-native, I should leave it alone, that that was the way to respect it. So I decided, even though I had some opportunities, there were Native Americans willing to let me participate, that the, that the moral or ethical thing to do was not to do it. It's not to say I think that use of peyote should be illegal. And I do think we should explore what Native Americans have taught us about the healing potential of this compound, mescaline. They did discover mescaline. And then there's another argument about reparations and reciprocity. So there are companies that want to use mescaline in their research and, and possibly as a treatment for alcoholism, which is one of the big ways that Native Americans use it. Is there any obligation on the part of those companies to return profit or somehow um, recognize or share their intellectual property if they develop it with Native Americans? That's a really interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. People are struggling with that right now. But I do believe that even though all drugs should be decriminalized, I think as a matter of individual conscience, I would discourage non-Natives from, from using peyote, especially because there are other ways to get it, to get mescaline. One is synthetic mescaline, uh, which doesn't damage Native peyote stocks. And the other is this other cactus I talk about, San Pedro or Huachuma, which grows in South America, very easy to grow here. Or grow your own peyote if you're a very patient person and a good gardener. It takes 15 years to get from seed to, uh, to usable button 
But I see no problem. I don't see that as cultural appropriation, if you have some seeds and want to grow it. But again, people draw these lines in very different places, and, and, and Native Americans do. I mean, I talk to Native Americans, some of whom would say, you know, use all the synthetic mescaline and, and San Pedro you want. Just leave our peyote alone. And then I talked to others who said, if you're going to use mescaline, you owe us reparations because we discovered it. So there's not, you know, Native American opinion on this is not monolithic by any means. And, and my own opinion is it's not monolithic either, as you can tell. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything?" I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover: The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. I want to turn to the magic word plants, which seems to be something that has almost talismanic quality in the, the body of work of Michael Pollan. 
and in the culture at the moment, by the way. I mean, have you noticed how many products are now plant-based in your supermarket? Yeah, and I'm not sure that that if you know when future historians do an analysis of the evolution of the concept of plant-based, if they won't find you at the very beating heart <laughs> of the the birth of that movement. So I want to ask you about the about that word, about that the power of that word. You're a gardener, and that has something to do with your long-term interest in plants. Obviously, because it's famous to everybody now, uh, your dictum about what we should eat started with plants and was made plant central. I'm not really kidding. I think when someday they ask why all these things have the word plant-based attached, they may come back to you. And then this book uses advisedly the word plants. You don't say drugs. You don't say medicines, which is a word that some users of psychedelics prefer and that some Native Americans don't much like to hear used in this context because they take it very seriously and are not sure that everybody who uses uh, these substances does. So talk to me about the word plant. (laughs) Well, it's been such a kind of common word in my personal vocabulary for a long time. I don't have that much perspective on it. I used it in the title of this book in part to remind people that's where drugs come from and that, that they are part of our relationship to the natural world. And we lose track of that. We think of drugs coming from laboratories, and some of them do, but a great many of them, of course, come from plants. And why do plants produce them? Then that opens up a whole conversation about evolutionary uh, objectives of plants as opposed to people. The fact that they are geniuses at chemistry and neurochemistry in particular and why they are, because they can't run away, basically. And so they have to use chemistry to either attract or repel. And I've been fascinated in that fact about plants for a very long time. These are not simple molecules they're making. And how incredible is it that a plant can hit on precisely the the chemical formula to have a profound effect on an animal brain? So I've been marveling at plants for a long time. I've been trying to uh, win them more respect, uh, speak for them since they they can't speak for themselves. Michael Pollan, Lorax. That's the that's the punchline. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll put that in the in the head notes of this interview. That did have a big uh, influence on me, the Lorax. Um, did it actually say? Would you say something about that? How old were you when you first heard of or read the Lorax? You think? I don't remember. I don't. I think it came out a little late in my childhood. I'm not sure, but it was one of my son's favorite books. And this whole time I was beginning this work in the 90s, I read it to my son over and over and over again. I've got it pretty much committed to memory, I think, at this point. I'd have to go back and check what year the Lorax came out. I think of that as kind of late and tied to the environmental movement. It has sentiments in it that it's hard to imagine before 1969 or so, when when the environmental movement is starting. Have you found it? Published June 23, 1971. There you so go. Your, so, your historical analysis is confirmed in real time. <laughs> it's nice when that happens. But the language is very much, you know, post-Rachel Carson, post the first Earth Day. So my exposure to it, I was 15 then or 16 then. So I wasn't reading Dr. Seuss at 16. But I did read it over and over again to my son who loved it. I also, you know, I've written a lot about plant intelligence. And, um, the whole effort to figure out how intelligent are plants, are they conscious, and what does that mean? I mean, I think we're learning some incredible things about plant intelligence, plant sociality. This is a kind of interesting moment for plant science, which has been a very sleepy field for a long time. If you talk to botanists, nobody was paying attention to them. But now you have um, all this work on 
how plants connect to one another and how the trees in a forest are very social. Suzanne Samard has a new book on this that's really interesting. She's done pioneering research showing that they can swap nutrients using these fungal networks. They can send messages. Plants can hear. There's interesting research that if you play the sound of caterpillars chomping on leaves to other plants, they will arm themselves and produce defense chemicals. You know, they don't have ears, but they can hear. They don't have eyes, but they can see. I mean, they're just bizarre. So it takes a lot of human imagination to to see the world from their point of view. And I've been eager to do that for a very long time and, and wrote a book, in fact, whose subtitle was A Plant's Eye View of the World. And uh, it's exciting to see. There, there is, though, I worry, a, a, a slightly mystical strain coming into some of this work about trees. I mean, there have been books out on trees that are more mystical than scientific that really strain credulity, at least mine. But in general, I think plants are getting a new respect. And that does tie into you know what we're learning about nutrition. However, the Twinkie is plant-based too, I think we need to remember. And there's a lot of crap sold as plant-based in the supermarket right now. Yeah, as is tobacco, as is, you know, right. as are plenty of, you know, plenty of other substances. Um, I, I wouldn't put caffeine quite in the tobacco category, but it's not in one of the good categories. I mean, as one expands the category of the plant, it can come to include not everything, but a large percentage of everything. I, I was interested to hear you say that sometimes the mystical tone of some of the plant work, the plant-based work, um, strains credulity because you're interested in mysticism. Right. In your work, there's a kind of you're on the edge, you're skirting the edge between giving us a rationalistic, scientific and social scientific contextualization. And you're at the just at the edge, especially in your interest in consciousness here of a field of endeavor that is fundamentally mystical um, and that needs presumably to be processed mystically to make any sense out of it at all. Right. I mean, to say meaning making is a rationalizing process. No. I mean, one way to make meaning is by making something rational. But another way to make meaning is to embrace its mystical quality. And it seems to me with respect to psychedelics that if we tried to reduce everything to its rational, it seems like we would be missing the point. Yeah. So I'm, I flirt with mysticism, but I am very grounded in the scientific worldview. I get grief for this from certain people in um, How to Change Your Mind. There were many people who objected to the fact that I didn't take seriously enough this idea I presented that consciousness is a field outside us, like the electromagnetic field that we tune into, that our brains are tuners or television sets. And I think that's a beautiful idea, but my mind goes to a more materialistic understanding that even though we don't understand how consciousness is the product of our brains and uh it's tempting to think otherwise and i'm more open to that idea than i was before experience with psychedelics but i haven't yet been persuaded and i'm curious to learn more about it but psychedelic experience for many people causes them to lose faith in the materialist view of consciousness and it's important to mention that that materialist view of consciousness is not well developed at all right okay it's it's, it's an easy thing the, to lose faith in, in in my view i mean there are yes. there are propositions of science that are well established and if someone were to say you know i no longer believe in newtonian mechanics i would say something's not totally right there on the other hand when it comes to consciousness, there isn't really a respectable materialist account of consciousness at all. There is simply the commitment to the view 
that yes. materialism must be true in light of what we observe, and therefore the consciousness must be reducible to the material, which is, you know, that's a plausible inference, but it's a form of inductive reasoning. It's not deductive or demonstrated reasoning. That's right. And I, I think the Dalai Lama was quite correct when he said at, at the first Mind and Life conference where they brought together neuroscientists and Buddhists that the material theory of consciousness is a, is a very interesting hypothesis. And, you know, we should give it no more credit than that. And so, uh, you know, I'm open, but I, I, it, it must be my training and background. But even when I'm writing about plant intelligence, I'm always hanging out with people going a lot further than I'm willing to go in terms of saying plants are conscious. I have some sense that they have a, a point of view, but I don't think they're conscious the way we are. I don't think they're aware that they're aware. I think they have an awareness of their environment. I think they mostly run algorithms that are uh, set in advance, although there is some interesting research that suggests they can learn. There were some studies done recently that suggest that they can learn from experience, remember, and apply those lessons to future events, which is pretty mind-blowing. So, you know, it may be too many years writing for the New York Times and the New Yorker and being fact-checked that can limit your, your willingness to imagine radical alternatives. Let me ask you about that, because you talked just now about your grounding in the scientific, and then you talked about the institutional framework in which a lot of your journalism was embedded. You're also writing books pretty much the whole time, but The New Yorker and The New York Times embody a certain kind of cultural power that's connected to a kind of scientific, liberal, rationalist worldview, broadly speaking, yeah. still an Enlightenment view. And I guess I wanted to ask you about how you conceptualize your role as an idea maker and idea disseminator in the world with respect to those different kinds of audiences, the kind of Times New Yorker audience versus the, the bigger world audience. Because you're one of the very small number of people who come out of journalism who transcend to journalism at a fundamental level. You've become a central figure in the culture and your ideas matter to a lot of people in a wide range of spaces. And you have moments in your, in your work where you sound like a rationalist prophet Still a bit of a prophet, though. <laughs> this happens sometimes to the climate change writers, too. I mean, I think Bill McKibben yeah. might be another example of somebody who, um, you know, who transcended in some sense the rationalist account of what's happening in, in the climate and was both a prophet in the wilderness and now a prophet that many people are, are listening to. When you think of the sort of trajectory of your messages out there to the world, how do you think of yourself? Well, there's an evolution here. I mean, I... I use the platform of the New York Times and, and the New Yorker to give uh, substance to ideas that were pretty edgy at the time. Uh, the, you know, before I wrote How to Change Your Mind, I wrote a piece for the New Yorker in 2014 called The Trip Treatment. And this presented early research on psychedelics being used to treat, not treat, but help people who were dying of cancer or, uh, you know, had a, a terminal diagnosis. And this research wasn't peer-reviewed yet. And much to my amazement, David Remnick gave me, you know, 10,000 or so words to talk about this. And it gave credibility to ideas that, had I published them first independently, might not have, might have struggled for that. So having access to those platforms has been critical to my career. You know, I was a magazine editor for many years, and I have some sense of how the media ecosystem works. And and where the edge of acceptable opinion is, having run up against it a couple of times. But I feel like I'm free of that now to a large extent, and that's kind of liberating. Um, but 
there's, you know, you mentioned McKibben, and there's also an interesting uh, transition or evolution that happens from being a journalist to being an advocate. And that's an awkward line to to follow. And, and that happened with me with my food journalism. I was writing, you know, very opinionated pieces about the food system and how fucked up it was for the New York Times magazine. And there was oddly no pushback for a long time and from my editors or from the culture until the industry kind of woke up in 2008 and realized, uh-oh, there's this critique getting currency. We better fight back. And they have been fighting back ever since with some success. And your writing also shifted there. I mean, you started saying, look at the structures and how bad they are. And then you went full normative by saying, this is what you should eat. You know, listen yeah. up, world. <laughs> Here's what you ought to eat. I mean, it doesn't get more vatic and peremptory and voice from on high that, than that. Yeah, although I have to say I sort of felt pushed into that position because my first book about food, Omnivore's Dilemma, was an attempt to show people the system and let them draw their own conclusions based on the system of what you should eat. Right. Hence the name and Dilemma, all, right. Right, exactly. And I was not as Vatic, uh, as, you, as you put it, in that book at all. But all I heard from people, I mean, thousands of people, it's like, okay, okay, environmental problems, uh, animal rights, all this kind of stuff, but what should I eat? And I, nobody would leave me alone until I said, well, this is, this is how I think we should eat. Right. So they, so, they, they demanded it of you. The, your flock demanded it of you. That's a, <laughs> we hear that story a lot from religious leaders. Yeah, I know. I know. It's an old story. But I felt awkward doing it initially. I felt awkward becoming an advocate because I had brought, been brought up in a different, uh, more innocent time in journalistic history where you didn't do that. But on the other hand, I was digging so deeply into the food system that it was inevitable I was drawing conclusions. And this is something that still, if you're a beat reporter on certain beats, you have to pretend you don't have conclusions, even though you're now an expert. And so I had moved from this point of following my curiosity, posing questions to the food system, to having a pretty good idea what was wrong with it and, and the direction in which it needed to go. And gradually you get drawn into that advocacy conversation, which is great in one way. And I have done my share of lobbying before Congress and things like that on various food policy. But it's also awkward, and it sometimes can shut you out of the news pages and relegate you to the op-ed pages, where I don't want to be. Um, so for the interest of journalism and wanting to do narrative journalism, it's sometimes best not to have reached that point of advocacy. The same thing happened with psychedelics. I mean, my book is the story of an amateur really learning about this new world. And I remember my first book event uh, at Harvard, at the Harvard bookstore, someone saying, as well, as a leader of the psychedelic movement, hmm. I was like, oh, shit, here we go again. <laughs> so I don't know. I have very mixed feelings about the roles. It's how I do my political work on these two topics. And that's my biggest contribution politically is advocating for things I see uh, as being helpful or necessary. But it's not where I started out. I really started out as a storyteller. And it's odd that both these things turned into movements. They didn't have to. 
I want to thank you for your fascinating body of work. And I'm also looking forward to finding out what's the next area where you'll start at the boundary <laughs> doing reporting and then gradually shifted to into advocacy. And I'm, I think I will not be the only person watching closely, but I realize it will have to invi- involve the word plants. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what I can do. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Noah. Great pleasure talking to you. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything?" I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover: The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Listening to Michael Pollan, I was genuinely fascinated by the story he is telling about the human encounter with plants and plant substances and with the human impulse to change our consciousness. This is in some way a story about human power, the human power through trial and error to discover what plants can do for us and what's bad about the things that they do for us. But it's also a story about the human impulse to regulate. And indeed, Michael took the stance that human beings inherently seek to regulate the uses 
of plants to shape consciousness, and that they've been doing that for as long as they knew how to do so. Simultaneously, I was personally interested in how Michael balances a scientific, materialist, call it enlightenment worldview. Perhaps it makes sense that for someone who thinks about the relationship between nature and culture and the human power to shape that, the question of getting beyond the simple conception of power through the notion of the mystical would be in the margins and pushing itself back towards the center. Last and definitely not least, I was deeply struck by the way that Michael talked about his experience in journalism and using that to shape the way we think about ideas by recognizing that there's some outer bound of public opinion and that if you push too hard against that outer bound, you lose your audience. I can think of almost nobody who's done a better job of expanding that outer bound, and it's intriguing to hear that from Michael's perspective, he did so very much beginning within the system and gradually moving from the news pages, as it were, to the place of advocacy. Those are takeaways that are extremely valuable to anybody who's interested, not just in understanding power, but in altering the way power is deployed and what we think is an acceptable point of view to hold on a given topic. Until the next time I speak to you, breathe deep, think deep thoughts, and if they'll let you, have a little fun. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. <laughs>